0: It's special because there's so many beautiful restaurants and so many great chefs up here to share it with. um, They're not competition at the end of the day. They're, They're another voice in the call to get good people to the region.
1: This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Working at a restaurant with a profound signature dish can have a lasting impact on a chef. For Jason Saxby, the hero suckling pig he mastered at Pilu lives on in spirit as he carves his own path in Northern New South Wales. Jason, how are you? Uh, very good, Huck, how are you, mate? Good, it's great to get you on the show. You're doing some pretty amazing things up in Northern New South Wales. Uh, yeah, look, you know, just uh, chipping away at this
0: um, region bit by bit, sort of embedded myself in the community now. And um, that's obviously opening up lots of doors and lots of pathways to try to make my own sort of um, style of food, you know, and,
1: and how
0: I also run the restaurant and
1: run the kitchen. You're doing amazing things up there at Ray's, but a lot of your career were in some real landmark restaurants in Sydney. Was it hard to make the shift to working in a regional center like that? Um, well, look, uh,
0: I'm actually originally from Bathurst, so my career started in um, smaller regional restaurants, so I already had a fairly good understanding, obviously not, not to a high level, but a fairly um, good understanding of how working in a small environment is and working with a small basket of producers, um, a small bounty of produce. Uh, um, so Bathurst is a little bit, the climate's a little bit different than than Byron Bay, but certainly... The um, limitations and also the the um, I suppose the the opportunities are all very similar. Um, it was hard to adjust, obviously, coming from from the big city. And you know, if you if the tuna you got in the morning wasn't wasn't as good as you wanted it to be, you could you could ring your seafood supplier and by twelve o'clock you've got more tuna. Whereas um, in Byron Bay, if you if you don't like what you get, then that's what you get. Um, but through that, you just actually work out what what is good and and when it is good um you tend to focus a little bit more on well why am i trying to use that when it's not going to be good like let's just stick to this because this is great so it was a bit of a took me i can at least six months to really really find my feet and then probably another six months to make it till i was really actually happy you know till i was really like it felt like i was i had the grasp of of what
1: the region needed. <laughs> Th- that region has really evolved incredibly in regards to food in the last sort of um, five years or, or so. Um, tell us a little bit about it and what you love about sort of what's going on there in the food scene. Oh, look, man!
0: The, the five years ago when I moved up, it has been yeah, just uh, just under five years now. Um, it's a completely different food scene than it was now. Sort of, I um, I suppose naively came to Byron Bay thinking that. Raise is this absolute iconic landmark restaurant, but in reality, it um it's had a very sort of tumultuous past, and it's been there for for thirty years. Next year marks our um, thirty year anniversary. So, uh, with the amount of chefs that come in and out and and all that, like it's no one really knew what the identity of the restaurant is. It's not like Pillou where for twenty years it's been the same chef with the same owner with the same ethos um, it's been it's yeah so it really had a bit of an identity crisis with the local community about what it was everyone thought it was this inaccessibly expensive ridiculous restaurant but it really isn't um, in the grand scheme of things um, i think it just gave off that image being such a grand building um, and yeah it's just kind of like in the last few years the amount of incredible talent that has moved to Byron Bay and and the surrounding region, of course, and opened up restaurants or have taken over existing restaurants has just lifted the the scene to just such an incredible high now that there's so many good options to eat at. Um, Whereas five years ago, there was a few, you know, like there was cafes and then there was a few restaurants and that's it. So, you know, for guests at the hotel when they're staying for a week and they don't want to eat in the dining room every night, you're kind of like, Oh, you can go eat at harvest or you can go eat at beach. Whereas now we've got we've got options, so many options to
1: recommend to staff now, so it's great. I'm glad you sort of mentioned Pilou. You have a, an incredible sort of relationship that's stretched over a long period of time of of working there and then going and doing your own thing and then coming back. And um the their signature dish though, the suckling pig is is renowned. Well what what's tell us a little bit about that and what was so special about it at that restaurant?
0: Um well look the the dish itself um is very simple. It really is just about getting a good um a good product a good a good pig at the right size um the way it's cooked has actually changed and evolved over the years it's not it's not um it's not been the same for for the whole entirety of uh, pilau's existence uh chefs have done their part by sort of and also technology has come a long way as well so it's not so much to just shove it in the oven now with some salt it's there's a little bit more science behind the times temperatures humidities um and just working out when the flesh gives and when it's at that perfectly tender moment rather than just putting it in for a set time and temperature because obviously every pig's different if it's one kilo bigger it's going to need a little bit more cooking so for me, it was always about working out. It's not so much about just put pigs in the oven and get them out when the timer goes off. It's about feeling the legs when you could tell that those legs had, had relaxed and, and given way to be really succulent and, you know, when the loin wasn't too dry yet but was at that point where the belly was meltingly soft, you know. Um, and it really, is, that's about it. Like it's truly just um, the quality of the pig. The time of the year, the seasonality in in winter, the pigs tend to be a little bit leaner. So it's about, you know, manipulating the times and temperatures and humidity levels to suit the pig. But um, the the beautiful thing with the pig at Pillow is it dominates the kitchen. Like everything in that kitchen revolves around the pig, you know, like they get delivered on a certain day. It's all hands on deck, getting them, breaking them down, heads off, et cetera, et cetera, getting them hung up in the fridge to dry. And then every morning, every chef knows that the pigs go in first, they get cooked, and then after that, and then you can use the oven for other things. But, um, and it's sort of, yeah, one of those things that, the place is embedded, well, the the pig is embedded in that place where I don't actually know how, how it would ever work without it. that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Has that experience, you know, with that signature dish at, at that restaurant that's a big part of your sort of career, has that transferred to where you are now a little bit? Yeah, a little bit. Look,
0: what it did teach me is um, – People, while necessarily you don't need to leave your menu the same, you do need to have a level of consistency where people kind of know what they're going to get. It's not necessarily about the condiments can change and the garnishes can change and what it, how it's served or in what course it's served, et cetera. But if, if they have something to relate to your business, um, you, you're going to have a better chance of springing up in that mind. Um, if they're like, oh, man, that pig at Pilu, oh, man, now I'm craving that. Now I want that. Um, so, you know, I've, I while I don't have a uh, deeply embedded signature dish at Ray's to that extent, people know that they can always come and get certain things, yeah. but they'll be different, you know
1: yeah absolutely you mentioned that you uh, grew up in Bathurst um before we get into sort of what you are doing there at Rays, to take us back to when you were young. What was growing up like for you and what sort of role did food play for you when you were young
0: Oh, look to be to be completely honest and absolutely no disrespect to family. um My mum was a single mum raising four boys, so food was not a celebration it was a necessity. you know we were very much a Uh, home cooking bolognese was on at least once a week you know my mum made a killer chicken corn soup and a you know killer potato and kransky soup and roast pork was always the loin of the pork you know dry you know like um legs of lamb like nothing fancy nothing meat and three veg and you know like really bog standard um aussie classics you know i would call them (laughs) um and, and so food never really played in my mind as anything more than just something you had to do a few times a day to stay alive. And then in high school, actually, I, I was always adamant that I was going to be an architect. I loved the designing and creating process. I loved drawing. I was really into drawing as a, as a younger kid. Um, so I really loved that, the thought that I was just going to go down that road to be an architect. I can design, create, draw. Um, and then, yeah, in year 12, my school had a program where you could do, you could start your, your career outside of school. So one of your subjects, you could dedicate to um, what you wanted to be. And so I did um, a design and technology course um, that would have gotten me my first certificate towards, you know, that, that industry. And while I love the design and the creation and I loved the physical aspect, I did not like sitting down. I hated sitting at a desk for hours calculating and, you know, the, the, the glitz and glamour of the design and all that was taken away very quickly. And um, upon speaking, to professionals are like, well, that's what most of the job is. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. My uh, personality doesn't really match with, with that ambition. Um, so, and my mum had at the same time advised me that, that um, women would love a guy that can cook and clean and look after himself and look after them. So, I did hospitality in high school um, in year, year 11, 12. I did commercial cookery uh, hospitality and while I loved it, I kind of just thought it'd be a good way to, to learn how to cook so I could so I could pick up the... a a great partner in life and um, ended up uh, very true in that respect. Um, Cooking has definitely um, improved my score (laughs) overall. But um, it's definitely just ended up being a career, like really – my hospitality teacher was kind of like, oh, you've got like a bit of a natural natural knack for this. You should really consider it. And I was like, look, you know, I don't want to give up weekends. I don't want to work Friday, Saturday night. I want to see my friends, blah, blah, blah. I was speaking to chefs and, and they're like, don't do it. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, here I am. <laughs> 20 years later, here I
1: am. <laughs> you mentioned that you're, you're in Bathurst, but you spent a lot of your career in Sydney. When Did you make that transition to Sydney and what was it like for you?
0: Um, as soon as I finished my apprenticeship, actually. So I did um, my apprenticeship in Bathurst at a few different establishments. Um, Crowded House mainly being my first one. And um, it was kind of, the, I suppose, the the top of the dining scene at Bathurst at that time. And then the, the chef of there went and opened up a restaurant called 92. So I followed him across. Um, but it was just kind of uh, getting to Sydney was like I was starting my career all over again. My, my first chef in Sydney was Alessandro Pavoni at the Park Hyatt Hotel. Um, most people would probably know Alessandro. He's, he's, um, he's quite the character. Um, and Park Hyatt was quite the property. So it was, it was a big wake-up call. Basically, everything that I learned in Bathurst was, was
1: irrelevant. <laughs> take, take us back to those first couple of years in Sydney. Who were the sort of important people and venues that you worked at? And do you have any stories of that time?
0: Um, yeah, look, my I suppose pre-traveling stage when I was in Sydney, which are probably my most formative years of cooking. Um, Alessandro Bavoni was my number one sort of um, driver at the start. He really, I, I think he he saw something in me enough to take me under his wing, and he said to me in his big um, burly Italian accent. I'm going to teach you how to cook. You fucking forget everything. You know, like, And literally, he put me on the sections. He put me on pastor section, which was the biggest wake-up call to me. Um, pastor and pastor Bathurst was certainly not handmade, fresh every morning, um, you know, and, and with the amount of level – like love and respect and care that goes into it and the amount of work. Like pasta sections are always beasts of sections. And, um, the, you know, at Park right, you had three different flavoured ris- um, ris- risottos on the menu. You had filled agnolotti. You had long pasta. You had short pasta. It was a big wake-up call to me and it actually sparked a lifetime um, obsession and passion with pasta. I still love making pasta to this day. It's it's still considered my my baby um, and then, yeah, then after sort of a year and a half with Alessandro Bravoni at the Hyatt, he recommended I go work for his mate up in the Northern Beaches, uh, Giovanni Pillou. Um, and, he, and he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you a job at Pillou because I really think you need to grow and, and see something else. Um, so just before he finished up at the Park Hyatt, he uh, got me in a trial up at Pillou and I went up there and Um, while I wouldn't say it was a world away from the Park but it was definitely a big sidestep, you know, very, um, regionally focused to Sardinia. So there was words that I'd never even heard of and still can't pronounce properly to this day. There was ingredients that, that were completely foreign to me and concepts and ideas that didn't seem to make any rational sense in terms of Italian food. Um, but that is Sardinia. It's really this little melting pot of crazy cultures and crazy people that that are crazily obsessive about um, their own culture. And then I suppose after a, a year and a half or so at Pilu and doing all of the sections and um, wanting, I suppose, yearning for that um, modern experience in, in a more uh, fine dining sort of um, high-end restaurant, I set my sights um, back to the city to kind of find Yeah, just something that would really just open up my skills and push me, you know, beyond the incredible challenge that Pillu was, which is 150, 160 covers at a two hat standard. It was an incredibly challenging job, um, but I wanted just a little bit more technique and a little bit more um, modern sort of um, diversity to my cooking. So I applied for some jobs and ended up landing a job at Key. And I suppose that's where everything completely changed for me
1: key is um, it has an incredible impact on the culinary landscape in Australia what, what's it like working with uh, Peter Gilmore
0: um, well look um, Peter Gilmore and I probably didn't realise a lot of the pros to working for for Pete until um, a couple of years down the track but he's an incredible guy that just really encompasses what I think a, a good leader and a good chef um, or a good uh, sort of influence can be like the way he treats his team the way he treats his staff the way he treats the restaurant the way he treats the ingredients and and the menu like it's really quite incredible um and going to key the first day there was literally like my first day of cooking all over again i went into the cool room and there's just tubs of these ingredients that i'd never seen before and you know by this stage i thought i was a fairly fairly decent um, cook and just walking in and being completely bewildered by crones, which are like little Chinese artichokes and all these things. I'm like, what is this? Like, what? What are these? And it was absolutely mind blowing. Um, the experience, and back in 2010, I think I started the keynote, 2009 maybe, um, was sort of like really a, a fantastic time. They were, they were just about to release their cookbook, so there was a lot of action happening. Um, that year, we just made the top 50 uh, restaurants in the world for the first time. So there was so much focus and so much drive in that kitchen at that point um everyone just was they got a taste of it and they just you know you want to push it more and push it more and um yeah it was such an incredible time to work there and and I still consider the way Pete uh runs his kitchen to be how I try to to sort of take inspiration
1: from the most you had some personal success uh and accolades in that period of time as well tell us about um what happened and then the impact it had on you
0: um, yeah, look, uh, while I was there, I was chatting to some chefs, and um, the Josephine Pinelay Award, um, for Best Young Chef, the City Morning Herald Good Food Guide had just uh, opened, and a few people told me that I should enter. Um, I was incredibly, um, I suppose, driven and passionate, and um, yeah, just really, really into the industry. And, and some, some senior chefs said that I should give it a go, um, and I did, and I ended up winning, um, in the 2011 award which was phenomenal and absolutely opened up doors and um i suppose opportunities overseas that that i probably i might have got there but it just gave it just made it a little bit easier because it gives you a name it gives you a uh, somewhere to 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 spring from um yeah and then sort of sort of finished my time at key and then um, I think just before I was about to finish and go overseas, I was trying to work out where I'd go, and um, Thomas Keller came to uh, Key to, to do a little thing with Pete, and I pretty much flat out just asked if if um, I would be able to go over there and work, and so he Pete emailed them for me, and um, I was going to go to the French Laundry in Napa, but then... I think my wife decided she wanted, well, my girlfriend at the time decided she wanted to go to Africa and volunteer to be a midwife in Tanzania um, for three months while I did my uh, stage overseas. Um, And I was like, well, I'm going to be by myself. I won't have transport Um, and decided to go to Per Se New York instead. So I worked at Per Se for for nearly four months um, with Thomas Keller and the guys and it was absolutely incredible.
1: Do you have any stories of what it's like working in that kitchen oh look the the <laughs> it's
0: so crazily different to any other kitchen I've ever seen the the military precision the discipline without abuse i'll I'll mention that like per se was a very uh disciplined place but there was never any sort of um ridiculous uh, abuse or anything like that like it's a very professional workplace but just the the systems that they operate on and the the cleanliness and the just the complete order the complete absolute order of everything that happens at that place is i don't think i don't think it it, it exists anywhere else in the world like you go to the dry store and all of the jars are label forward and they're all in alphabetical order uh, it's someone's job every afternoon to go and make sure that that everything's in alphabetical order and everything's topped up to the perfect level. there's people that are employed with just to walk around and wipe the walls and the skirting boards to make sure there's no scuff marks like, it's absolutely mind-blowingly operated. it is just incredible and there's if if the original system breaks down there's a backup system that everyone just knows to go into. Uh, it's just absolutely incredible. And, and then they do that while rewriting a menu every service. Like it's a completely different menu every day other than the, you know, five or six signatures. So, oh, it's just it was absolutely incredible to witness but un- unachievable to copy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what what was it like when you came back to Australia?
0: Um, oh, look, um, after New York, I went to London for a while and that was incredibly challenging but um, I suppose that, that – teaches you your limits and pushes them further um, and then i got back to australia and i think i just um at that stage i was very lucky to land a sous chef job at the bridge room working for ross lusted um which was um also a, a great a great sort of period um for sydney dining like bridge room they were just about to get three hats they, they got it a couple of years after i left and ross was an incredibly organized and um passionate man as well And I think but I just was at that stage where I was just yearning to kind of have a little bit more say in in what I cooked and be a little bit more creative. Like I'd been cooking by that stage for for ten years or something like that. And I just really wanted to to step out and make and make my own sort of style of food.
1: Well, you did do that, stepping out on your own with a um, with someone else as well to create a neighbourhood restaurant, which became one of my favourites and one of many people's favourites in Newtown. Um, tell us a bit about it.
0: Um, yeah, look, uh, Russo and Russo was a was a. I actually think the perfect first um, head chef job, to be honest. Um, Mark Russo was a waiter at um, the Bridge Room, and um, he kind of sprung to me the the idea that he was going to open his own restaurant and wanted to do Italian that wasn't Italian um which obviously it's like he he wrote the job description for me (laughs) because everything he said he's like I want it to read or feel like it's going to be you know non as Italian but I don't want it to eat anything like it and I'm like that seems like it's right up my alley um I don't I don't cook like a nonna (laughs) and um I can make delicious food and, and I'm creative. So it was, that was incredibly fun. Like we built the restaurant literally, it was a, an old um, takeaway, tire takeaway place. I had walks in, in the kitchen and holes in the floor. And I think it was yellow from memory, like a really horrible, like a uh, greeny yellow color. I don't know it was absolutely a work in progress. Um, so yeah, Mark and, and I and a few other people literally spent our our days and nights ripping walls down and building bars and, you know, like really building it from scratch, blood, sweat and tears. You know, the exposed brick wall going up was a a two-week expedition for me, chipping paint off walls and, you know, trying to expose it. It was just an absolute passion project. So by the time it came around to opening, you were so embedded and so in love with, with the business because it was a piece of you um, the passion was, was there, you know, and it was a big wake-up call for me as to how to run a kitchen, you know. I, I, this was probably when I started to realize the importance of um, like people like Peter Gilmore and Giovanni Pillow and how they lead their teams. It's, it's, it's all about how you treat people. Like you can have this drive for, for perfection and you can have this creativity and all these things, but it doesn't matter if your team doesn't follow you um, and you know, as some of the restaurants I'd worked at led by fear, and you know you were too scared to make a mistake, and that's not that's not a good way to, to lead. Because as soon as as soon as the head chef's gone, um, the fear's gone, and then all of a sudden that's when people they don't have the respect then, and that's when the care's not there, and that's when I suppose people go ah fuck it, I'm not going to get caught, you know. Whereas if you lead. With positivity and respect, even if you're not there, the team will drive 100% to, to succeed and to do the very best that they can do um, and aim for perfection because they truly respect what 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 you are and what your vision is. Um, so that was the place where I really learned that about trying to keep a team together because constantly training a new team is not fun. And it's also where I really, I think I established my style of cooking, which is, you know, Italian inspired, but um, with no strict uh, rules that I need to follow. And a little bit of an an Australian, a proud Australian uh, twist.
1: You had a lot of uh, renowned dishes on the menu in your time there at Rousseau and Rousseau, but um, were there any dishes that had a foundation of pork or um, pork as a hero during that time that you can tell us about?
0: Yeah, look, I actually think that probably my my all time favourite dish and um, a bit of a cult um, favourite with a lot of people was the crispy pig's ear um, psalm that I did, and and basically that was through a need to uh, like again it came back to pilu and all of the the bits of pig that that aren't the prime pieces and constantly trying to find ways to to use them so you're not wasting them and ears are incredible if they're treated right like they're absolutely incredible um so yeah we did like a, we we basically poached the ears off for hours and hours until they were gelatinously tender and then we pressed them and then we would actually slice them into thin strips and then treat them like salt and pepper squid essentially after that um toss them in a little flour mix with um we we, we put some delicious spices in there and then we served it in a radicchio leaf with a um, anchovy banyara dressing, and with some pickled onion and some shredded up little uh, vegetables, and you just wrap it up in the radicchio leaf and eat it. And it was like crunchy, spicy, bitter, sweet, sour. It was oh, amazing. Um, and it was and it was just it was just the, the ear, you know, the thing that a lot of people throw in the bin. And that to me, I think um, was probably one of the longest standing, and I'd say one of the the most requested dishes at Russo and Russo aside from maybe the squid ink fregola, but um, that was definitely my favorite. But then also like we also did a little maiale um, latte, um, which is like cooking milk in pig. So you'd get like young pork and it's a very traditional thing. You cook it in milk and um, it, it's so tender. And it's so flavorful and soft and luscious. But then we would finish it over charcoal and then just to get that little bit of smokiness and char on the outside. And then the milk that you cook the pork in, which was infused with bay leaf and garlic and thyme and uh, lemon zest and all that, you would use that to make a sauce and you would just pour that over the pork. And it was phenomenal as well because the milk really, really, really works to tenderize the pork um, and soften the fat. And it just takes away any... Oh, so good. So lush.
1: You mentioned how, you know, in the early years, Pilu was so important to you and the foundation of your career, but you ended up going back and um, running the kitchen. How different was that for you? <laughs> so different. Number one, I suppose, Pillu was so different by that
0: stage as well. Um, Dan, um, Danny Mulligan, the original head chef um, from Pillu had moved on and um, the next chef that came along, Matteo Zamboni, who um, is from the north of Italy, um, whereas Danny Mulligan, again, was an Aussie um, cooking Sardinian food, which I actually think is super – it's a completely different angle that you look at when you're looking at at Italian food. I actually think um, if Aussies are going to cook Italian food, they really try to either make it really – Traditional, or they try to make it really different. Um, and Danny was definitely a traditionalist. He really, really wanted it to to speak Giovanni's story. Um, and that was that was the biggest lesson that I learned. That is, I had to find the balance between creating the food that I wanted to cook, but also the food that made sense. Because uh, there's no point going to a restaurant and trying to change the ethos, the ethos or whatever of a place like pilu You've got to go there, and you've got to keep that ethos and that direction alive but yet also get some personal satisfaction out of it so that was the biggest challenge and the biggest fun for me really was Giovanni would tell me a story and I'll turn that story into a dish so I got my creative outlet and he got the story of him eating sea urchin as a kid blah 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 and you know like and Giovanni loves to tell a story and I love to tell a story so it was always it was a very beautiful um thing but yeah, it was definitely a challenge at the start to try to, to sell a culture that you had never really been involved in other than working in a restaurant. <laughs> yeah.
1: you, you mentioned at the top of the show a little bit about the, the suckling pig at Pilu and how each head chef has had the chance to put their own sort of spin on it. What, what did you do?
0: Um, well, look, we just worked on the times and temperatures just to give it a longer, slower cook at the start just to relax that meat and then a little bit of a in-the-middle cook to, to um, melt the fat and then a really high cook at the end to, to crisp the skin. Um, but I suppose like a lot of the time it was served either for two to share or whatever, whereas I really wanted it to just be on the menu. I wanted it to be really accessible, but I wanted the garnishes to, to have a bit of fun. So, you know, we did ones where we cooked the heads and we shredded all the head meat down and made it into like a – almost like a riette mix and then we wrapped that inside cabbage leaves and cooked it over the charcoal you know little things like that where you get to really play with the garnish and then you know we started separating the pig from the main plate so it looked a little bit more like a like an experience you know and and serving on the side so yeah just really just trying to work out the the delivery of it because a bit of um Suckling pig on a plate isn't the most elegant and refined thing in the world, but I sort of wanted to keep that rusticity but almost enforce it. So by then Giovanni had all these beautiful um, boards that he got from a special wood from Sardinia, that like a cork. Um, and we were presenting them on there with, like, rosemary and torching it so it kind of smoked up around the pig. And was, yeah, just creating a little bit more of a delivery and a little bit more of an experience. But mainly I just had fun with the garnish. I just really changed the garnishes a lot and played around with the accompaniments and and making sausages out of the, the leftover meat and, you know, really just having fun with it.
1: How did the gig at Ray's come about?
0: Um, well, look, it was actually very serendipitous. Um, my partner was, uh, we had a holiday booked to Fiji and my partner was pregnant and our doctor said uh, you shouldn't go to Fiji when you're pregnant. Um, so we decided to go to Byron Bay. Um, well, try to go to Byron Bay anyway. Uh, we couldn't get accommodation because it was peak School holiday period, and little did I know how popular Byron Bay was. (laughs) Um, But I'd actually never been to the region before; I'd only ever driven through it, so I didn't really understand what the region was. I always thought it was kind of a place for surfers, stoners, and holiday makers. Um, And so we ended up staying in Kingscliff, which is about an hour up the road, and spent a bit of time in Byron we went to the farmers markets and it was really eye opening because there's a culture here that is so obsessed with food and produce and ingredients um i suppose it's just not a, there wasn't a lot of restaurants telling the story but there really was this incredible food culture um and the producers were so passionate about what they did and when the producer and the grower was passionate about what they do you know you're going to get good produce and the soil's phenomenal the climate's phenomenal and i was like wow this is everything that um, i've ever dreamed of in a regional setting because tammy and i were you know we already had a two-year-old by that stage so we were talking about what the next step was because living in an apartment in the northern beaches of sydney wasn't really working anymore um, so the the gig at raise didn't come up by any sort of want for a new job or to leave Pillu. I was really happy there and really um I think in my element at that moment. Um but then we just we just yearned for space. We yearned for a yard and we yearned for uh, the country life that that we both because my partner and I are both from Bathurst, so um Tammy and I were always talking about like having a, a proper yard or having a bit of land or something like that and then yeah lo and behold Byron Bay ended up being the, the dream location she could get a job she's a nurse so she could get a job here easily um, it was still in New South Wales so was still really comfortable to kind of um transition from Um, and then yeah then I <laughs> came home from work one day a couple of months later and my wife had pulled up a list of blocks of land that were for sale (laughs) and she's like I think we should go look at land I'm like sorry what huh (laughs) what do you mean (laughs) she's like I think we should buy land I'm like shit all right so yeah we uh we, we flew up here a few times on on my days off to look at a few blocks of land and we found a great one in Chillingham which we should start building on at the end of this year um, it's been a very long process. That's a whole new story, probably a whole new podcast for that one. <laughs> but, um, yeah, then, then was just like, literally just life was going to continue. We're just going to keep the land for a few years. And then by the time my son started school, we were going to move up here and I was going to open a restaurant or something like that. But, um, uh, mate up here, David Lovett told me of, um, raised on what it goes and eating a head chef. And my first response was what, what the hell is raised on what it goes? I've never heard of it um you know the restaurant had never really made an impact and the accommodation certainly didn't come up in my filters when I was looking on booking.com for Byron bay places to stay because uh the the, the price <laughs> um so I never heard of it I'd ne- never even heard of it I had um sort of reached out about the job at paper Daisy and because Ben Devlin was leaving at that stage and that's how I found out about Rays. and man like as soon as I googled the the property and looked at their instagram profile i was like holy shit that place is incredible why isn't this a really well-known regional restaurant why isn't this awarded why isn't this you know like what's the story so um yeah i <laughs> i um spoke to francesca webster who was the general manager at the time and um it went from a three-year dream to a i'm flying up in two weeks to meet everyone and have a walk through the property, and then it went from a three-month to a we-really-need-someone-in-a-month, and then all of a sudden, or six weeks later, we're in the Northern Rivers. <laughs> um, and, yeah, haven't looked back since.
1: There's some pretty incredible producers in that region. Do you have any connections with pig farmers um, of the region and utilize them in the kitchen?
0: Uh, yeah, look, so when I first got up here, my I suppose my obsession with uh Pig was very strong. Um, and I reached out to a gentleman that I met at the farmers markets um, from S- Esperenza Farm, and he does free range organic pork. Um, but what was mainly my interest was he was actually doing his own prosciuttoes from his own pigs. Um, so for a little while, for the startup at, at uh, Ray's, I was um, featuring his. Um, prosciutto that he made himself on his farm, which was so phenomenal. It was f- absolutely phenomenal. Um, and then, yeah, sort of that was that was an incredible one. And then the guys down at um, Clarence River Free Range Pork or Mighty Clarence Free Range Pork, um, they've been my sort of main go-to suppliers. And obviously, you got Bangalow Sweet Pork. Um, there's, there's actually quite a few up here, but I suppose the biggest one for me um, in terms of not the the pig itself, but um, pig products has been Salumi Australia. Like they're located 20, 20 minutes up the road from Rays, and the the in, in, in just the the in, in, um the things I can get from those guys like the Induya. Like Induya is my favourite pork product of all time. It's probably one of my top two three ingredients on the entire planet. Um, and their india is phenomenal. Um, and we use their india a lot for seasoning, a lot for enhancing sauces or broths um, and you know, spread on toast. It's the best thing in the world. Um, so yeah, Sal- Saloon Australia has been a big one for me up here. Um, I already had a pre-existing relationship with them when I was at Pilu anyway because they were the guys that Giovanni started making Bataga with um, many moons ago. Um, and they were suppliers of all of the salumi products for peel, uh, fresh water. So it was kind of a natural uh, relationship that we already had. Um, but I've just taken it that one step further to, to go direct through them and to be a little bit more uh, involved with um, their ingredients and their products.
1: Is, is there a dish or two uh, that you can tell us about that sort of exemplifies... You know, your cooking at the moment, but also, you know, relies on pork uh, uh, to a degree.
0: Yeah, well, look, so pork. Um, I've, I've actually got suckling pig on the menu at the moment, um, which was kind of kind of crazy and serendipitous when you messaged me the other day. But um, it's one of those things that gives me a little bit of PTSD because when you do, you know, thirty plus pigs a week for. Uh, I think I worked at Pillow for six years, six and a half years in total by the time I did both rounds. Um, it's a lot of suckling pig, and you eat a lot of suckling pig, and that sounds great. like To someone listening this podcast who's tried it a couple of times, they'll be like, that's my dream. It's really not. <laughs> it really is and after a couple of years it's really not a dream it's a curse because <laughs> it's so fucking good and then you eat it and then you eat it and then you eat it and then you, it's still so good so you need to eat it but you really just don't want to eat it <laughs> um, and then the amount of times you have to use it in staff meal and stuff like that it really it dominates your life um, in every way shape or form so I only do it every now and then because it's one of those things that um, as much as I love it it does take over the entirety of the kitchen yeah, even my, my meat chef yesterday was stressing, um, because you know he's got four other mains to cook, and and all of a sudden there's a pig away, and you know it's it's like everything stops. Carve the pig, you know. Like, <laughs> um, the oven was uh, taken for three hours in the morning because the pigs are in, so my pastry chef couldn't do his pastries. So yeah, <laughs> there's a reason why it's only on for a short time, um, but. My uh, my my favorite way to cook is on the bone, obviously, and then we actually get some amazing uh, pork cutlets on the bone, um, and they're my favorite. Like I truly, just anything on the bone is so good. But we brine it in sort of like a beer spiced brine for a couple of days, and we take it out. Like brining is your pig's best friend, um, especially when dealing with something like a like a. Uh, chop when you when you do have that lean loin surrounded by beautiful fat and bone, but that that loin is still very delicate and very, um, I suppose, uh, has the tendency to really dry up. So we brine it for a couple of days. Um, first way I ever did it on the menu was to sort of inspired by a cotoletta where we brined it, then we chilled it, and then we cooked it over a really hot charcoal to like char the outside, but essentially the inside was still raw. Then we would crumb it in like mustard and then your egg wash and then your herb sort of crumb mix and then we would pan fry it and it was the best cutlet, the best schnitzel we've ever had in your life. That was phenomenal because you can leave it pink in the middle still because it was a really thick one. That was, that was man, we served that with anchovy, caper and herb sort of dressing, some radishes from Boonluck Farm. The leaves were cooked over the charcoal Um, Then horseradish over the top, some pickled chili. It was epic. It was so good. Um, But then I suppose I think my style of cooking evolved a little bit and maybe became a little bit more refined. And so these days we do a lot of glazing. So at the moment we um, just replaced it for duck, but we had a Davidson plum glazed um, pork cutlet. So again, brined for a couple of days and then cooked over charcoal um, until that pork sort of cap along the top is just meltingly soft and delicious, and we just keep glazing it in, in, a, in a like a Davidson plum ketchup almost, and it just like chars and burns. It was kind of inspired by like a, a Chinese barbecue pork setup, uh, and that was phenomenal. We served that with some beetroot, um, some Davidson plum chutney, some pickled muntries, and,
1: and that, was, that was next level. That was so good has this opportunity that you've uh, that you've got up there in northern new south wales has it has it changed you and changed your approach to food oh uh, yeah definitely i can't really write menus anymore i've got a i've
0: got a i can't i can't write up a dream list of uh ingredients that i'm going to get next month and and start working on a dish it's literally it's very off the cuff whereas you know you've got this bounty of something for a couple of weeks, and then the rain comes, and then you don't have it. So, it really changes how you look at a menu and how you cook. Um, it becomes a little bit more freestyle, which is really fun, but very challenging for someone who likes to be really organised. It's um, it means you're not really planning menus. You know, when, when we're not launching a spring menu next week with twelve new dishes, it's dish by dish, day by day, <laughs> ingredient by ingredient. Um, and that's beautiful because that's the way it should be. That's the way nature, I suppose, wants it to be. Um, and the relationship you gain with your producers and your growers through this constant communication, um, it's special. It's really special. And that definitely uh, magnified a million percent since moving to the, the Northern Rivers and sort of dealing with all the small producers and the six things that they might grow really well Um, and just trying to showcase them.
1: Well, you really are doing something pretty special up there in northern New South Wales. What what do you love about what you do? Um,
0: Again, it goes back to the creativity, the design. Like, it's really mentally uh, satisfying at that initial stage, and then you get very quick um, gratification out of seeing the end product too. You know, like I just started working on a strawberry dessert, and within a week, you know, I've got a result and – You know, everyone loves it, and it's it's really actually like it's very satisfying as a uh, mental health kind of thing, where where you get this instant reward. But it's also that like the the community up here is phenomenal. the The climate up here is phenomenal. Like this is true God's country. It is absolutely a special place, and uh, I kind of felt like it was a little bit of a hidden jam up until a couple of years ago, thanks to COVID. Um, and now it's special because there's so many beautiful restaurants and so many great chefs up here to share it with. Um, that, that, that They're not competition at the end of the day. They're, they're another voice in the call to get good people to the region. Like, you know, this region needs good staff. It needs uh, more people visiting that, that love food and want to go to a beautiful restaurant or go to a great bar. Um, we need, you know, the region needs that so we all kind of join forces on attracting that.
1: Well Jason, it's always entertaining to catch up with you and an absolute honour to have you on The Crackling today to hear just a little bit of your story. Can't wait to see what you do up there at Rays from now on as well. Uh, Please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon.
0: Cheers Huck mate, it's been my privilege and it's uh, amazing to, to listen to what you guys have been doing with The Deep in the Weeds
1: and The Crackling. Cheers mate, appreciate it. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstars. I'm Anthony Huckstep, stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.